you would turn with me to Matthew chapter 8, starting in verse 18. This is the word of the Lord. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up to him and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you may go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me, leave the dead to bury their own dead. Heavenly Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for your scriptures, Lord. Thank you for all the many miracles you worked just to get them into our hands today. Thank you, Lord, that we have the opportunity now to not just read it, but, Lord, to understand it. Lord, your spirit is at work in this room. I know I've felt it. I know others have as well. I pray that you would take this word that we're about to examine, this, this teaching that we're about to hear, and I pray that you would work on our hearts today through your spirit. Lord, only your spirit can work something mysterious and amazing and just awesome in this room. So I pray, Lord, that you would unleash him. Help us to hear and see what you have for us today. In Jesus' name, amen. So expectations versus reality. If you're somebody that's been on the internet, there's lots and lots of pictures of people who ordered something online and then got something that was, let's just say nowhere, well, let's just say it plainly, nowhere near what they thought they were getting. And there's plenty and plenty of pictures like that. So uh, now I've given you something to waste time with at work. So <laughs> feel free to look up some of those. But if we're honest, we don't need the internet to have our expectations and reality not match up. Maybe we plan for a holiday feast and then the oven goes out. Maybe we uh, have this great present in mind and then it, you give it to the child and it breaks a few seconds later. And unfortunately, dad can't fix it. Or, or maybe you plan a trip and the weather doesn't cooperate. You go to Hawaii and it's the first time in the history of Honolulu that they've had 70 degree in rain the entire time. And you just happen to be there for it. Or maybe you go see the snow and there ain't any. See, that happens sometimes. We have these high expectations of something good to happen, but then something bad happens. And that's really normally how we look at expectations, don't we? But if we're honest with ourselves, we have the opposite as well. Sometimes we expect something to be terrible, and then the situation presents itself, and it's not that. You think, oh, this person doesn't like me, but I have to talk to them. And then you have the conversation, and it turns out, wow, we're actually kindred spirits, and I really like this person. That was the best 20-minute conversation I've ever had. See, that's where we go. We, 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 we go with this either, it's going to be great and we raise it up too high, or it's going to be terrible and we raise it up too high, and then reality brings us back down to earth. And if we're honest, this happens with Christians too, and in Christian environments. Speaking for myself, I know that I, you know, I, I read the story of a young Charles Spurgeon who started preaching at age 16, had his first church at 18 moved to another church at age 19 with several thousand people and led to a revival by 20. I was not doing anything of value when I was 20. I don't laugh too hard because I know some of you weren't either. <laughs> but I look at that and I go, oh, that's amazing. That's the expectation. It's so high up there. Or maybe 
I have a negative expectation. And I go, I want everything to work out right. And it must work out right. I'm following the Lord. I'm doing what he said. And then I read of Jonathan Edwards. I love Jonathan Edwards. He's a phenomenal, he's probably the smartest philosopher America's ever had. Most Americans don't know him because he's a Christian. So they kind of shove him off as the fire and brimstone preacher that he also was. But Jonathan Edwards was at a thriving Christian church that got sideways with him about a doctrinal issue. Now, this wasn't a primary or a secondary. This was like a tertiary issue. This was like so far down on the list of important things, but yet the church fired him. Jonathan Edwards got fired. Go, well, what hope is there for me? At least he's smart and he's just this brilliant writer. So I look at that and I go, well, then I'll set my expectations low. And so there's this constant, if we're honest, there's this constant going back and forth between good expectations versus bad expectations. And depending on personality, that drives a lot of how we're feeling. I remember as a coach, what we would do a lot of times is we would help students with expectations by kind of doing some role playing. We do this, this imagining, what would we do in certain situations? And so we'd do something like this. We'd say, put the ball down. And I'd say, okay, five seconds left, down by three. What play do you call? Go. Oh, okay. Or two seconds left, you have to inbounds the ball. Where are we taking the shot? Where's the best place? Right? We need a run. We have two outs. What do we do? And we, we game plan these and we think through these so that when we're in the situation, we go, aha, that's what we do. We have the expectation. We, have, we, we take that and we put some legs on it. Now, right here, Jesus is doing the same thing with us. He wants us to know where our expectations should be. And surprise, Jesus isn't going to say, just expect good. But he's also not going to be the pessimist and say, just expect bad. He actually takes both because he says, yes, there's bad coming, but oh, the good is so good. And we're going to be looking at this as we go through. And this is a really good section for us. At first, when I first looked at this, and I'll admit I was talking to the pastors as well, talking to Pastor Travis early in the week, and he goes, I got like a 15-minute sermon. You know, and we were both like, well, it's actually not a bad thing because it's really nice outside. It's Super Bowl Sunday. You know, you got places you want to be. But as we begin digging into this passage, we really realize this is Jesus and through the Holy Spirit, Matthew, setting the stage for what comes next in the book of Matthew. Because the rest of the book of Matthew, there's all these random sayings that Jesus says that if we don't get them in their correct con entire context, we miss. You know, when Jesus says, you know, you should love me more than your family. When Jesus says, take up your cross. When Jesus says, I suffered, you're going to suffer. This is not something new to the disciples. So we have this tendency, we grab a passage, and unfortunately, I, I'm going to say this, don't ever just read a Bible verse. You should read all the verses around it, and technically you should read the whole thing, but you should read all the verses around it, because when we take a verse out of its immediate context, it doesn't always work. But when we take it and put it into its entire context, Matthew is starting right here, and he says, this is what it means to follow me. He described the disciple, he described the citizen of the kingdom in the Beatitudes and throughout the Sermon on the Mount, and now he says, this is what it looks like to follow me. So today, he's going to break down what you should not do as you follow him. What you should, how you should not think, how you should not feel. So he's come up, down off the mountain, and he's preparing us, getting us ready. He's showing us what we need 
to be like when we walk out there as a follower of Christ. See, these two men we're looking at today, the scribe and the disciple, they both want good things. They want to follow Jesus. I mean, one of them is going to be caring for where he stays and, what, and whether his needs are met. The other is going to be caring for a family member. And these are both very good things. But see, that's the thing about idolatry, right? Idolatry for almost every single person and everybody in this room is not that we have some little thing that we've carved that we go home and we pray to. No, it's taking a good gift from the Lord and having it in the incorrect place. Having an idol in the wrong place means we take a good thing and we make it a God thing, as opposed to having God be in the correct place. And that's what we're going to see here to a certain degree. We need to see things in the right perspective with the right amount of weight. So here's our big idea. Jesus wants kingdom citizens to understand the cost of following the king. Jesus wants kingdom citizens, those who are a part of his kingdom, his disciples, which is what you're here today. You obviously have some sensitivity to this. This is talking about us. He wants us to understand that it's going to cost us something to follow him. See, he wants us to renounce all other citizenships. Now, this doesn't mean you go renounce being an American. You were born with that privilege of being American, many of you. It's something that, that you have. That's not what this is talking about. This is not talking about an outward piece of paper. Don't sign up for the Jesus kingdom and we have, you know, your citizenship. No, it's the inward. It's the heart is what he's worried about. Where is my first love? Is my first love in me? Is it in something good that God's given me? Or is it in God and God alone? See, we as Christians, we, we succumb to this idea that Jesus is like a hobby or a club. It's an occasional activity that I do. You know, once a week I, I go and I do this thing, maybe twice a week. And honestly, that, that's, that's a good thing. We, we should be spending time with the Lord. But Jesus is not going to allow us any wiggle room and say, I'm just a, something you add on to your life. No, I am your life. We must surrender all of our allegiances, all of our absolute priorities to Jesus and Jesus alone. If we look at Hebrews chapter 11 or, or 1 Peter 1, it talks about how we are foreigners and strangers in this world. We are supposed to not fit in. We shouldn't be blending in with the world. We should be sticking out because it's all about discipleship. Today's passage is all about discipleship. It means how do we follow Jesus? So I looked up what discipleship meant. I got a good definition for you. It means the process of embracing the life and ethic of Jesus because of the hope of the gospel. See, we, sometimes we kind of mix that up. And, you know, this is why last year we did a whole series on the gospel. I'd recommend if you didn't hear that to go back and look at it in our archives or come see me and I can get you some notes in a book about it. But we are to follow Jesus, not because we're following Jesus, but because of the fact that the gospel points us to how great following Jesus is, to how great God is. And that's, that's this, this cool picture that we see here. Because following Jesus is good. But these two guys, they wanted to approach Jesus on their own terms. They, wanted, they said, I'll follow you, Jesus, as long as you let me follow you this way. As long as I get to do it on my terms, then I'll follow you. See, that's not following. That's telling Jesus where you're willing to go. And unfortunately, that's not the way it works. I mean, just imagine if the sheep were like, hey, shepherd, I think I want to go this way. Shepherd's like, no, you know, I can tell where we're going's bad. Let's go this way. No, no, I'm, I'm a really smart sheep. Please follow me. The shepherd's going to go, whack, come on, let's go, right? 
So today as Jesus is explaining to us that we need to not have divided loyalties. So I see four, four main things that Jesus is saying. So these are the how not to follow Jesus. And they'll be up on the screen here in a minute. But I'm just going to hit them right here and then we'll get into it. The first thing he says is follow me but not without your whole heart. The second thing he says is follow me but not the wrong, for the wrong reasons. Follow me when it gets tough. And then follow me now is what Jesus is saying. See, Jesus is not really worried about a following. He's not worried about the numbers. He wants committed followers. So we start off right here with negative examples. He starts off with, here's how not to follow me. And if we remember, Jesus likes to teach this way, doesn't he? With the Lord's Prayer, he doesn't say, pray this way. Oh, and here's some bad ways to do it. No, he says, here's a bad example. Here's another bad example. Oh, and then here's how you do it. And so this week and next week, we get some bad examples. Next week's a totally different kind of bad example. But then in two weeks, we get the good examples of how to follow. So this is some anticipation for the next two weeks. But today, we get two really bad examples. One is looking for his well-being and comfort. The other one is looking for, for Jesus to match up to his timeline. One author calls this section how to almost follow Jesus. I like that. This is about how to almost do it. You missed it by this much. So here's our first point. Jesus says, follow me, but not without your whole heart. Bring your whole heart with you. Now we're going to rewind a little bit because this is actually from last week's message. Because this idea of following someone with a whole heart is actually what we saw with the centurion. So if you look at verse 1, this is where we were last week. Jesus came down the mountain and great crowds followed him. These were crowds and crowds of people following Jesus. Then in verse 10, the, the centurion had said, no, no, Jesus, don't come to my house. You have the authority to do it right now with a word. Don't come near it. I'm not worthy of you coming into my place. You are too holy. I'm too sinful. Stop. And Jesus marvels. Now, Jesus doesn't marvel because he's surprised. All right? This doesn't catch Jesus off guard. Jesus marvels because any time anyone points to the glory of God, he feels joy off of that. See, that's one of the things is that Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and God, the triune Godhead, for all of eternity has enjoyed glorifying God, glorifying each other. And so right here, Jesus is marveling because it's an unexpected person for everybody watching, but it's glorious. And so he goes, yes. That's my God. That's the way it should be. That's me. Look at me. And so Jesus says, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. Faith is that heart devotion, that, that saying, I am not God, you are God, and I fully submit. See, Jesus sees that these people, from verse 1, want to follow him. And many of them are following him because it's miracle time, right? There's all these miracles. What did it say? Jesus healed all of the people that came to him. Jesus is going, you know, I'm breaking down these walls with my miracles, but you guys are missing the point. The point is not, hey, I can do miracles. The point is, I'm the miracle worker. Come and worship me. True followers do not follow because of miracles. They follow because Jesus is worthy of faith and devotion. And the only way we can have faith is if our heart is convinced of it. If our heart and our emotions are convinced of it. So the centurion clearly gets this, and Jesus says, he's an enemy, he's the ultimate outsider, and yet he gets it? What are you all paying attention to? You all are missing it. 
And so this was one of those points in the passage last week that, that I wanted to bring into this week to kind of flavor where we're going. Because again, it's the context of the whole thing. So this is somebody who doesn't follow Jesus, who gets it. And now we're looking at people who say, I want to follow you, Jesus, who still don't get it. So now verse 18, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. This would be the other side of the Sea of Galilee. The other side of the Sea of Galilee prompts people to go, ooh, can I go, please? Jesus, let me, me, I want to be a part of this. And it brings up this opportunity for Jesus to say, do you know what you're asking? Do you know what you're asking to follow me? Because honestly, if Jesus has your heart, there's no cost too great to play to go after him. These people wouldn't be asking to go with him. They would just keep following him because the heart is the key. So the first thing we see is that we follow Jesus with our hearts. The second one, Jesus says, follow me, but not for the wrong reasons. Follow me, but not for the wrong reasons. Verse 19, a scribe came up and said to him, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Now this is a declaration. This is a good declaration. There's nothing wrong with this. Many of you have said something similar. No matter the cost, I will follow you. That's the, those are the words that should be coming out of our mouths. But Jesus here is going to point out something else that's going on. What's interesting is that scribes are usually the enemy of Jesus. In the book of Mark, over and over and over again, scribes are described as this little thorn in Jesus' side, this little thing that's always annoying. Jesus will do something amazing, and then a scribe will bring something up and try to derail it. As a matter of fact, Matthew is the only, person, only one of the Gospels that records anything even remotely positive about the scribes, and this is it. There was a scribe who said he wanted to follow Jesus. That's the only positive about these scribes. Jesus wants him to know, though, what following Jesus really entails, being a disciple really entails. So a scribe is a highly educated person. Think a brain surgeon, right? This is a person who's gone to years of schooling and is considered an expert, even in things that they're not really knowledgeable about. But don't miss the, don't miss the comment here. Don't miss what's being done. The subject of this sentence, both in the Greek and sort of covered up here, is the scribe. The scribe is the focus of this passage, of this thing. He's saying, Jesus, it's your lucky day. I am going to follow you. This man is an intellectual, and the fact that he calls Jesus teacher rather than Lord is very, very telling. He is not attracted to Jesus because of his authority. He's attracted because of his teaching style. He's also attracted to Jesus because a scribe would be noticeable, okay? Just like we had the leper last time who would be unclean, unclean, and they would be disheveled. The scribe would walk up and you'd go, oh, we're in the presence of a scribe. This is a big deal, right? I mean, it's like the person being in scrubs with their name badge that says PhD, and they're walking up and, you know, they look very official, right? And so this scribe comes up and he goes, attention, everyone, attention, pay, pay attention, teacher, I am going to follow you. And your entourage just got so much cooler. I've just given you some gravitas to your group. And you're like, okay, but wait a second. He does say teacher. Yes, but here's the thing. There are five separate times that the word teacher is used in response to Jesus in Matthew. All five times are by people who are either against Jesus or who don't follow him. 
We see this in uh, right here. We see it in chapter 12, 38, and then in chapter 19, 16, and then 22, 16, and 36. It's always on the lips of someone who either walks away from Jesus or is actively trying to attack Jesus. Matthew never uses it for someone who's submitting to Jesus. And since the, the scribe comes along and he goes, you're such a good teacher, I could really help. I'll be right there with you. He announces. Now this is a big deal too. To follow a rabbi. So that word teacher is the word rabbi. It's, it's to, to you are a teacher. To follow a rabbi, you ask them to let you follow them. You don't announce that you are following them. So this is a scribe who thinks he's a rooster who's going to stand with the other rooster and give him all of the privilege of being the co-rooster in charge. Because a scribe telling Jesus he's following him is not asking him to be his teacher. So that's an important thing to get. Now, I love John Bunyan, and if you've ever read Pilgrim's Progress, it's a phenomenal book. I highly recommend it. There's a lot of kid versions, too, which for us adults actually does help. Um, but in Pilgrim's Progress, everybody has a name that matches their problem or their issue or their characteristic. So I went with this one. So this scribe is Mr. Bighead or Mr. Somebody or Misty, Mr. You're Lucky to Have Me. So this is his problem, right? So he's following Jesus the wrong way. He's thinking, I've got a lot to contribute to your kingdom, Jesus, so I've decided I'm going to follow you. Wrong reason. Okay, third point. Jesus says, follow me even when the going gets tough. So Jesus' response to this scribe is going to be, following me is not what you expect. Following me is not going to be easy street. Verse 20. Jesus said to him, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. The message translation says, are you really ready to rough it? We're not staying in the best ends, you know. See, following Jesus has a cost. Some of you know this cost. You know that it's cost you popularity. It's cost you friendships. It's cost you family members. It's cost you leisure time. It's cost you treasured habits that you did prior to coming to Christ. Maybe it's cost you jobs, but it's going to cost you something. However, the value of being Christ's disciple is immeasurably more valuable than the costs that we give up. See, Jesus does not want followers at any cost. He wants followers that will follow him at any cost. Jesus isn't going to compress down what he desires from his followers to say, oh yeah, let's make it as easy as possible. Everybody come in. If he wanted to do that, he wouldn't have been teaching the Sermon on the Mount, which kept making it tougher and tougher. I love what Puritan Samuel Clark said. Whosoever will take Jesus truly must take as well his yoke as his crown. Take his sufferings as well as his salvation. His grace as well as his mercy, as well as his spirit, so that we will have the blood to redeem. And then Spurgeon, you can't go without a Spurgeon quote. You can't be Christ's servant if you're not willing to follow him. Cross and all. What do you crave? Do you crave a crown? Then it must be a crown of thorns like the one he wore. You crave to be lifted up? You'll be lifted up just like him upon a cross. See, this persecution is going to rise. This, this, are you going to hold on to Christ as most dear or are you going to hold on to something else? And Jesus is saying, if I'm not what's most dear to you, you are not my disciple. And he says, Jesus has nowhere to lay his head. Now, we know that Jesus was 
renting or borrowing a place in Capernaum. We know that he kept returning there, and we believe he was staying in the same house over and over again. However, the point here is that this is not his home. Just like if we're followers of Christ, our kingdom home is not here. We're just passing through. Our citizenship is in heaven, Philippians 3.20. We are strangers and sojourners, 1 Peter 1.1. So this is what we see. This idea of the Son of Man, this is a title that Jesus uses for himself. It's first used in Ezekiel. Ezekiel uses it about 93 times. But the one that Jesus is referencing here is Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7, Daniel writes, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This is a prophecy for the Messiah. And when people read it, they said, a son of man. Yes, that means he's human. So we're looking for a human Messiah, which is true. They were looking for a human Messiah. We have a human Messiah. But when you read the second half of this in verse 14, you'll see how can a human have an everlasting dominion? That means a dominion that never ends. That will not pass away. His kingdom will not be destroyed. Humans have an end point. So this can't be a regular human. It's got to be something else. This Daniel prophecy is the one that Jesus references. And this is the first time he says it in Matthew. And he's going to say it many more times. So getting our mind around this is important. Only in the Gospels do they add the definitive, definite article of the so Ezekiel says, a son of man, a son of man, a son of man. Jesus says, no, the son of man, right? Those old English King James version, T-H-E-E, -E, I am the son of man. And there's a point to this. He's saying, I'm not just a, I am the pinnacle. I am the one that is the son of man that all other sons of men are going to look to to have hope that they can go into heaven, that they can have this eternal life. See, Jesus is the perfect human. He's the epitome of what humanity was supposed to be and the one that ultimately reconciles us to give us access to that great garden at the end of time that we talked about last week, that access to the holy of holies. Jesus uses this uh, son of man, the son of man, 83 times in the gospel. It's used five more times elsewhere in the New Testament. He's saying a few things here. He's saying, I am the humble servant. I have come to forgive sinners. He says, I am the suffering servant who's going to die the death for the sinners. And then third, I am the glorious king and judge who returns to establish God's kingdom. See, the scribe knew this passage. The scribe knew that when Jesus went and said, the son of man. Now, maybe everybody else didn't catch it, but the scribe would have known. The scribe most likely had parts of Daniel, if not the whole thing memorized, Ezekiel as well. These scribes knew God's word. And when Jesus said, the son of man, the scribe went, whoa. See, what Jesus is saying is, hey, scribe, I'm not just a teacher. Hold on there, Sparky, okay? There's more to me than that. I am not only a teacher, but I am God eternal. He's correcting his first word out of his mouth. He says, you're just a teacher. Jesus goes, no, I'm so much more. As a matter of fact, I'm Lord. So this scribe was confronted with Jesus' true identity. Jesus has no faith in this man's faith. 
this desire to follow him, he sees right through it. It's self-love. It's not about self-denial. It's about power, not about submission. And Jesus says, that doesn't work for me. You need to give me your whole heart, which means you submit to me. J.C. Ryle said, nothing has done more harm to Christianity than the practice of filling the ranks of Christ's army with every volunteer who's willing to give a little profession and talk fluently of experience, but withers away at the first bit of persecution. There's no perseverance. See, Christ wants genuine followers. He knows that if he allows this guy in, the first time they go without, the first time they have persecution, the first time anybody says a crossword, he's running away. And he's in a worse spot than where he is right now. Jesus is confronting him and saying, if you follow me, you will have nothing, but you'll have me, and that's everything. It's all you need. I will provide. So the first conclusion we see with our first person we looked at is Jesus is worthy of our unconditional trust. He is worthy of it. He is worthy. He's saying, I'm trustworthy. You may have nowhere to lay your head, but I'm going to take care of you. Stop trying to do it yourself. And then notice there is no response from the scribe. We don't know what he says. We don't know if he follows. We don't know if he walks away. We don't know if he becomes a believer at some point. We'll look it up when we get to heaven. But at this point, Matthew says, I'm not telling you the answer. Our fourth point. Jesus says, follow me immediately, now. Don't drag your feet. Don't delay. Follow me now. Verse 21. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. So here's his Pilgrim's Progress name. It's Mr. Faintheart, or Mr. Family First, or maybe Mr. Moneybag. The Amplified uh, translation says, let me collect my inheritance. The message says, let me see to my father's funeral. Now those are very interesting, different translations of this passage. Because there seems to be a conflict here. Some people think that this guy's father had just died, and so he said, oh, i got to go take care of this funeral and I'll be right back. Others say, no, this is not about that. This is saying, let me go and wait for my father to die and then collect my inheritance and then I'll be back. Well, the first thing I would say is it's definitely the second one because if the father had just died, funerals in Jewish times took a whole year to complete, right? So there was a lot of different things that they would do um, and it's very, very in-depth and very, very high up there. So the Jews did not believe in erecting a monument to that person uh, because that could be an idol. That could be some form of idolatry. So instead, there was a celebration of the person's life, and then there were certain mile markers along throughout the year, and then they would go take the body and put it into what's called an ossuary, which is a bone box. It's about this big and this far wide, and they would put the bones in there, and then it would go to a family grave site because graves were few and far between. That's why they used caves and things like that. So this would have been a big deal for him to be there if his father had just died. So I, I believe, and I, most of the commentators believe, that this is not what is happening. Instead, let me go bury my father as a figure of speech, much like it's raining cats and dogs, or break a leg, or give you a piece of my mind. We don't actually think, oh, I should go check and see what's actually coming down. We don't think, wow, that guy's mean. He told that actor to break something. And then what if I give you a piece of my mind? Do you give it back? 
So we know that these are figures of speech. And so this figure of speech is simply saying, I need to wait until all my stuff is in order before I can follow you. I need to get my life in line, get it all figured out before I can follow you. Bury one's father is an idiom. Basically, it means I want to postpone this until I'm ready to follow you, Jesus. I got I to gotta get a few things in order before I can follow you. Here's a contemporary version. I'll follow you. However, I have an obligation to help my father's family business. And if I don't, if he dies, he's going to probably not leave anything for me. So I'm going to go and I'm going to get really financially set so that that way when I come back, Jesus, you're getting a quality disciple who doesn't have to worry about food, doesn't have to worry about stuff. I'm set to follow you. You see, there's the same problem as with the first guy. He wants to follow Jesus on his own terms. Bring his own, here's what I've got. It's so good. You need this. Jesus says, no, follow me. Jesus will not accept his excuse. Jesus insists that following him is even higher priority than family obligations. In Deuteronomy 13, 5 through 6, it says that the, the, the obligation to God supersedes family, even parents. Jesus is assuming that divine prerogative for himself and saying, following me is the most important. He is not saying that following your parents is unimportant or loving your family or anything of that nature. But instead, he's saying the primary importance is following God. Verse 22, Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. The message translates this one, first things first, your business is life, not death. Follow me and pursue life. So now, if you were to read this all by itself, out of context, you would go, this is kind of harsh. Jesus is kind of being mean right here, especially if this guy's dad just died. Oh, just forget about it. But Jesus was not saying this to a guy whose dad just died. But there is something to be said for this sounds kind of rude. Jesus is not being insensitive. What he's saying is, you are now a part of the spiritually alive. The spiritually dead are only worried about surviving and keeping things going with the other dead. He says, let that go. Follow me. I will take care of you and I will take care of them. So the people of the world are dead to Christ. They do not see his beauty nor hear his voice or desire to follow him. Only his sheep do those things, like John 10, 27 says. The people of the world are those whom the Savior describes here as spiritually dead. And he says, it's they who take care of the physically dead. Let people, he says, who are not interested in my work and who are dead in their sins, take care of the dead. Your duty is to follow me. So he wants, again, the right order, the right priority. Jesus is talking about leaving those things who are, those who are not pursuing life to find the ones who are. We see a similar idea of this in Matthew 22. Matthew 22, Jesus says, As for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read that what was said by God, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob? For he is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. So this idea of he is about bringing life, not about celebrating death. But what about this honoring of parents thing? Doesn't that seem like kind of a big deal that Jesus is glossing over it? No, what he does is he says, let's put it in the right order. Let's make sure that it's in the correct order. The number one priority is doing what God says. Now, does that mean that God might say to someone, yeah, go care for your father? Absolutely. But that's not what this situation is. This situation with this man, he is saying, I got to go and kind of hedge my bets and make sure I have a retirement plan so that that way when I follow you, Jesus, I'm all set. 
He's not even doing it for love of father. Because we, can we be honest that sitting around waiting for a parent to die so you can get their inheritance is probably one of the worst things I've ever heard? That's a pretty awful thing. So Jesus is saying, no, put me first and then everything else falls in light. Remember, we've seen this before. Remember when Peter and James and John were called to be disciples? Matthew 4 recounts this. We did this a couple months ago. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he, Jesus, saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Verse 20, immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. He called them. Immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed him. So we know a couple things here. We don't know a whole lot about Andrew, but we do know Peter was married. How do we know that? Last week it said Peter had a mother-in-law. That comes with marriage, okay? <laughs> I happen to have a great one, so there you go. <laughs> Peter had a, had, a, had, a, had a married, he was married, he had a wife. It says Peter immediately, he dropped his nets and went to follow Jesus. That immediately means without delay. I don't know how that conversation would have gone with his wife. Hey, I've been gone for a few months. I've been following Jesus. But look at John and James. They drop everything and leave their dad in the lurch to follow Jesus. This is what a disciple does. When you see Jesus in the right place as the greatest of great things, you put all those good gifts that he gives us in their correct order. Remember, idolatry is taking a good thing and making it God. And yes, we can take our wives and our husbands, we can take our fathers and our mothers, and we can take our children and put them right up there at the top. And Jesus says, no, it must be in the correct order. When he says, follow me, this is a present imperative Greek. What this means is ongoing. It's not a one and done. I followed Jesus on that day, so I'm good the rest of my life. And then it says, leave. This is a one and done. So it's a follow me continually and leave and be done with it. Jesus' disciples here are being recalled. They're being retold. This is about following me continually. There will never be a day that you are not following me if you're my disciple. See, that, that changes the way we view things. It's not a hobby that I add on. It's who I am. And then these hobbies are over here. Who I am is a disciple of Christ. Because anything that hinders my unqualified commitment to him must be set aside. We must put things in the right perspective. God, family, and then everything else. Look what Matthew 19 says. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, we talked about that last week, and you got that picture from Revelation 21. You who have followed me, same word, that's the continual long-term following, will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone, that's all, everyone includes all, who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will, will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. Following Jesus means leaving behind something. You can't continue to be who you were and just add Jesus on as a little flavoring. He is not something to add to your routine. But whatever you're asked to leave behind, even those most precious of relationships, will pale in comparison to what we receive in Christ. 
So that's what Christ is teaching us. He's saying the bad expectation is, yeah, I have to give up stuff. But the good expectation is, I'm going to get so, so, so much more. And those of you here that have known Christ for a while, you know when you feel him, when you feel the spirit indwelling you, there is a, just a power that's there that we are only getting a sliver of compared to what it'll be like for eternity. True followers do not fit Jesus in and around the life that they've made for themselves. Instead, they take him and make him the highest priority, and then God puts everything in the right order. Other commitments will vie for our attention, but our decision to follow Jesus cannot be put off. Nothing should be placed over total commitment for him. So our second conclusion is Jesus is worthy of our undivided loyalty, our undivided affection. He's worthy of it. He says, I am worthy of your trust. I am worthy of your affection. And then the disciple, no response listed. We don't know how this disciple responded to that. We don't know what he said. We don't know if he became a believer, stayed with him, or if he walked away. So we've, we've seen two conclusions, which really is telling us why we should follow Jesus. The first one we saw a minute ago was Jesus is worthy of our unconditional trust. The second is Jesus is worthy of our undivided affection. Two people who want to follow Jesus are confronted with the cost of following him. And with both, we have no record of what they chose. Matthew leaves the response of these men out of his history. And this was on purpose. Because Matthew knew what they said. So why did Matthew do this? Well, he wants us to leave us with a question. What did they choose? Did they follow? Did they not? But that's not the only question that Matthew's leaving us with. Matthew leaves this intentionally vague so that we will go, what about me? What about me? If I'm that scribe and I'm that, that, that I know everything, am I approaching Jesus and going, Jesus, you're so lucky to have me? Or do I go to him and go, I'll follow you as long as it doesn't get tough? Or are you like that other disciple who says, I want to follow you, but I got to get all my stuff lined up first before I can follow you? Which one are you? Are you not one of these? If we're truly following Jesus, we're not chasing him for his miracles and spectacles like the crowd, but we are bowing our knee like the centurion. We are not avoiding the cost of following Jesus at all costs, but rejoicing to be rejected, opposed, and afflicted with him. We are not clinging to the loves we had before we met him, but we are submitting every single love to our first and our greatest love. That is our goal. That is what this is about. Do we see Jesus this way, worthy of our unconditional trust, worthy of our undivided affection? And if you don't, don't delay. Don't wait. Today, ask him to show you exactly who that is. Whether you saw it 50 years ago or you've never seen it before, now is the time. See Jesus as he truly is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this passage. Short though it may be, we praise you for the, 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 just the stuff that is there. That, Lord, you can teach from just simple answers to questions. It's amazing the things that you pack into your word. Thank you for your spirit giving it to the writers and then the millions of people that have touched and, 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 and preserved and prepared and gotten the word to us to this day. We thank you for your guiding hand in all of that. 
And Lord, we thank you now that it is working in our hearts. That, Lord, you are worthy of our devotion. You are worthy of our trust. You're worthy of our faith. And so, Lord, continue to work on us today. In Jesus' name, amen.